All right. Welcome to those who are joining us online. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. And we are putting the verses up on the board, but I encourage you, if you have a Bible and I give you time, and I admit I have not been good about that since we've gone to the, the verses on the board because they are there, but it's good if you want to make a note or to take notes in your Bible um, and then to reflect upon it later, to read what the Word says. It's always a, a benefit to that. So, yep, Luke chapter eight, 18, starting verse 31. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your Word and your power, that you have such love for us to seek and to save, that you hear our cries, and you are a merciful God. You do not delight in uh, the death of even the wicked, and you would... Your preference, your will, is that all would turn from sin and come to Jesus in faith. And thank you for the gospel, Lord, how you give us hope of eternal life. You give us forgiveness and cleansing, cleansing we cannot wash ourselves of, that sin that easily weighs us down, those weights in the world as well. We ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit and give us understanding of your truth. Cause us to draw near to you, Lord, for you are awesome and mighty, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. The God who said, let there be light, he causes his light to shine even in the darkest situations. The life of Hagar is a great example of this. She was an Egyptian slave. She was harshly treated by her mistress, Sarai, and she ran away. In Genesis 16, it says, the angel of the Lord found her. She was by a fountain of water in the wilderness. She was not looking for God, but God came to her. He identified her. He sought her out and called her Hagar, Sarai's maid. And that's so cool that she wasn't looking for God. She was just looking for water to drink, but God was looking for her. And he found her, he knew her. And he promised her that she would have a son. She was pregnant at the time. And he said, the name of your son will be Ishmael because the Lord had heard her affliction. And that name Ishmael means God will hear. So every time she said the name Ishmael, she was recalling that God heard her in her affliction. God heard her in her distress. And out of pain and suffering came this daily reminder that God hears her, even when she's hurting. Genesis 16, 13, it says, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? So she called God El Roy, which is the God who sees and she did return to Sarai, and uh, we see she did so in faith. She named her son Ishmael, as God commanded, and her experience is such a great example that God hears us, he sees us, he seeks us out, and he speaks to us. And when we feel like no one can understand what we're going through, no one understands our sorrow, God hears, he seeks you, and he will speak with you. He draws near to us, and we don't even think to draw near to him. So the God who revealed himself to the patriarch Abraham, he also revealed himself to a runaway slave, Hagar. And the one who called them both by name, he knows your name too. And the God who's unapproachable in glory, he draws near to you today to speak with you. And will we cry out to him? Will we receive him? Will we run to him? And it's such a shame that sometimes our pains and our sorrow, it, it can 
for some reason, inhibit us or prevent us from coming to God. It's like you're in prison and there's a visitor coming to you who has the power to set you free. But we'll say, no, no visitors today because our pain is too great. Our despair is too, too deep. But praise the Lord, he comes to us anyway. And he still speaks to us and it's up to us if we will respond to him, if we will hear him and answer No suffering that God allows is greater than the consolation he also gives by his grace. We're going to see that today, starting in Luke 18, verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Jesus is traveling through Samaria and Galilee as he headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. During that time, he taught people about the kingdom of God. He taught them with parables. He cleansed lepers. He held children in his arms. He prayed over them, and he revealed truth about the kingdom of God. And in God's kingdom, all who exalt themselves will be abased, all who humbles themselves will be exalted. And this would be evident in the life of Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He pulled the disciples aside and he told them what was awaiting them in Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to be mocked, insulted, spit upon, scourged, will die, but the third day will rise again. And Jesus told them as plainly as possible what was going to happen, but it says they did not understand because the thing was hidden from them. It's kind of like when an adult is speaking over the head of a child. You know, you, have you ever had that situation where you're speaking to another adult? They understand what you mean, but the kid has no idea what you're really talking about. Um, and not just spelling words. I mean, they understood the words that Jesus was saying. He was speaking Hebrew. They knew what he was saying, but they didn't understand the meaning. They didn't know the significance. They didn't connect it to their own life of what was actually going to happen and when. It also had to do with their mindset. In both the Matthew and Mark accounts, the statement of Jesus, it was directly followed by the mother of James and John coming to Jesus. And what did she ask for? Like Jesus says, I'm going to be going to the cross. I'm going to be dying. I'm going to be insulted and spit upon. And she says, when you come into your kingdom, may my son sit on the right and the left hand. They were looking for glory for themselves when Jesus was about to be totally humiliated and killed. Like there's a disconnect here between what the kingdom they're looking for and the kingdom Jesus was going to establish through his own sacrifice and his death and his resurrection. Jesus said, you do not know what you ask. They didn't understand that kingdom that's built upon love and grace. The kingdoms they idolized was one of power and authority and control. The disciples were kind of like, if I could compare it, a child who wants to be a firefighter because they want to ride in the big red engine and and have the siren and the horn. That part of it was very appealing, but they didn't think about that selfless sacrifice and the preparation to go into burning bush to go into a house where there's screaming people who are hurting and risking your life to save them, that hadn't entered into their minds. They didn't know what it was going to cost. They didn't understand the cost that Jesus was going to pay for them or what would be required of them to enter into that kingdom. Many of them martyred. 
They couldn't comprehend that cost, that he would be scourged, that he would be pierced, that his beard would be ripped out. If they knew what awaited Jesus in, in Jerusalem, they would not have gone. It's like they would have grabbed him and said, you're not going. But God, praise the Lord, had a glorious plan. They would have done all they could have done to avoid pain, and they would have missed out on Christ's resurrection and glory. Please turn to Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3 and 4. We're going to read a couple of passages here in Isaiah just to show, because Jesus had said, this is going to, what's going to happen in Jerusalem is going to fulfill the scriptures. So this is just one of the scriptures that was fulfilled when Jesus went to Jerusalem. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to read a few portions of this passage. Speaking of Christ, it says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Continuing on in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. God had these redemptive purposes for the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that the disciples did not understand. They could not comprehend what Jesus was accomplishing through this. It follows as well that the suffering in our lives, it can fulfill God's glorious redemptive purposes. And we could think, well, what good can come out of sorrow, grief, and death? Well, from the text, we see eternal life, prosperity, that Jesus would see his seed. He would see people born again by faith in him. He would be satisfied. They would be justified. I don't know the specifics of your case. The disciples didn't understand, but God does. He knows how he will redeem it. And when we think something is completely beyond redemption, look only to your Savior, Jesus, because we have been redeemed through his shed blood. We have been born again by his grace. Back to Luke 18, verse 35. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. As Jesus is drawing near to Jericho, there's a blind man by the side of the road begging. Mark 10, 46 identifies him as Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. This blind man, he hears a commotion of people nearby, and he asks, what's going on? And when he heard Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, he just cries out. He starts shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Bartimaeus had never seen Jesus. Being a blind person, he had never seen a miracle, but he had heard about Jesus. And he calls Jesus the son of David, which acknowledged him as the promised Messiah. 
Proof of this we see from the Pharisees' mouths in Matthew 22, 41 and 42. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So they said, the Messiah is the son of David. And this blind man is shouting, he's screaming out, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, have mercy on me. This proclamation is more than his lineage. It's talking about him being a savior, the promised Messiah, the Christ, the King of Kings, the one who had mercy and could give mercy. Everyone around him, what are they doing? They're saying, shut up, be quiet, like quiet down. This is controversial what you're saying. This is embarrassing. Nobody wants to be hearing this from you right now. But he just gets even louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. To have mercy is to show compassion in distress. It's a distinguishing attribute of God's character. I admire this blind man who saw Jesus for who he was, for who he is. And he knew his need. He was keenly aware of his need for mercy. Have you ever needed mercy or help, but you were too afraid or perhaps ashamed to admit it to anyone? Well, this guy's admitting it. He's shouting it out in front of everyone. He would not be shamed into silence the more people told him to be quiet. He cried out louder. Verse 40, so Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus stops. It's like Jesus had a, he was a man on a mission, right? He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to accomplish the purpose for which he's been sent. And yet he stops at the sound of the blind man crying out. And he says, bring that man here. The Gospel of Mark, it includes a telling observation. In Mark 10, 49 and 50, it says, So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. This man, he was shushed by the crowd, but he gets an audience with the son of David. And it's significant that he would throw aside his outer garment, because that garment, it was his covering. People usually only had one, especially a poor person. And you would often lay that garment across your legs to catch your proceeds of begging. But at that moment, when he hears that call, it's like he throws it aside, everything, and he goes to Jesus. There's this sense of urgency. There's a desperation there. I think a desire in Bartimaeus that we can lack. He was acutely aware of his need. He knew Jesus could meet his need. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he asked that he might receive his sight. And at his Jesus' word, he's miraculously able to see. And Jesus said, your faith has made you well or whole. That word is sozo, which means to save or to make whole. Now, what occurred at that moment was more than wholeness to his eyes. It was that his soul was saved. He was made whole inside and out. He was a changed man. And when Jesus says, go your way, it says he followed Jesus on the road. There's no mention of him going back to even find his garment. He's following Jesus now. It's a lovely picture in how Christ, all of our needs are met. Bartimaeus knew he was unworthy 
to have an audience with Jesus, the son of David. He was not worthy of mercy, but he cried out for it and Jesus gave it to him. It was like faith quickened him to cry out for something he did not deserve and God graciously gave him even more than he asked for. If Jesus was passing by you today, if you heard that that commotion is Jesus passing by, would you make your voice heard above the crowd? If he asked you, what do you want me to do for you, how would you answer? Could you just boil it down to one thing that you would have Jesus do for you? The eyes of Bartimaeus, they were broken. They were impossible to repair. But what's impossible with men is possible with God. There may be many people who come to Christ, genuine faith, and still have impaired vision. Yet every soul that's cried out to Christ has been made whole by the power of the gospel for salvation, forgiveness, redemption, eternal life. Everything that we've asked for, and when we say, Lord, save me, he has done that and more because he's given us his presence. He's made us part of a fellowship, part of a body of Christ. Is there an area of your life that you see as inadequate? Moses felt the very same way. He complained that God was having him lead and he's not a polished speaker. And I don't think it was just an excuse. I think he really wasn't, he wasn't well-spoken. He knew it. Other people knew it. Exodus 4, 10 through 12, when, when God said, you're the one that I've chosen, he says, then Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before me nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing and the blind? Have not I, the Lord, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So just the opening of his mouth to speak was an act of faith. God wanted it to be that way. It wasn't like he was the most well-spoken person. He was not a great spoken person, but God would be with his mouth. I think about the prophet Abijah in 1 Kings 14. He's a blind prophet. It says his eyes were glazed over by reason of age. He had these like cataracts going on. And God tells him, the wife of Jeroboam the king is coming in disguise. This is what you're going to tell her about her future. So here's a blind person that God is his eyes. He sees more than what you could possibly see. Her disguise may have fooled people with eyes, but because God was Abijah's eyes, he's like, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why are you pretending to be someone else? I've been sent to you with sad news. And he tells her things that only God can know. So you have a blind man who can see more than what you can see. You have a person slow of speech who God is with, and God's with his mouth. God will provide. God will guide every step of the way. Continuing in Luke 19, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. As Jesus enters Jericho, we're introduced to a man named Zacchaeus, who is quite popular because of the song that is sung in his honor. He was not a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. So he was in 
charge of all the tax collectors in that area. And it says, and he was rich. This tells us he was greedy and unscrupulous. He was one who profited from the oppression of the Jewish people. Uh, People looked at Zacchaeus the same way we would, a politician of humble background who on a six-figure salary is worth hundreds of millions of dollars after being in office for a couple of years. You know, something weird is going on. Something's shady. Something's a little crooked. Zacchaeus was like really crooked. He was very shady and everybody knew it. And I don't think he cared. He was rich. His name, ironically, it means righteous or pure one. Probably the antithesis of what you would think in Jewish culture. What is righteous and pure? A tax collector, someone who's very, very low on the social ladder. The man outside Jericho, he couldn't see Jesus because he was blind. Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus because he was really short. Everybody was standing in his way, and when they saw the little guy trying to elbow their way through, they're all, like kind of looking at it with contempt. They were not making way for him. And so he, he wants to see Jesus. So he, he has this childlike enthusiasm. He runs where Jesus, he's like, he's going to come by this way. He runs ahead. He climbs a tree to get a good look. His height limitations did not keep him from seeing Jesus. The willingness, like just like the man threw aside his garment to come to Christ, he's willing to throw aside his adult dignity, climb a tree like a child, perched up there, this rich man, to see Jesus come by. And it reminds me of what Jesus said previously, except you become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. One thing we see in both the blind man and Zacchaeus is they did not make their physical limitations or the actions of others an excuse for not seeking Jesus. They sought him. People scolded the blind man for shouting for mercy. Everyone kept blocking Zacchaeus' view. But for both of these men, receiving mercy and seeing Jesus was more important than what others thought about them. I was thinking about, uh, I guess, pride. Pride is fragile. It works to maintain a strong exterior because a negative opinion of others, it will crush it. It will wound it. So we stay quiet out of fear. We withdraw. We can get angry at God for making us short when he should have made us a bit taller. And we say God has withdrawn from us when we've not done what we could to seek him. Like they did what they could, right? The blind man, he couldn't see, but he could scream. He could yell. So he did. Zacchaeus, he couldn't see over the people, but he climbed a tree. He, he was able to come to Jesus in a, in a remarkable way that required faith. I think about King David. He dealt with some criticism when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he was so stoked to do this. He was excited. He puts off his royal robes. He's dancing with all his might in a linen ephod. And his wife, Michal, sees him dancing, and it says she despised him in her heart. It's like she's like, oh, what a disgrace. You know, he's just thrown aside his kingly dignity. He's dancing around out there. What are the young ladies going to think about him? She was really concerned about what other people would think rather than the God that he was worshiping, how great he was. 
2 Samuel 6.20, it says, Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So he's excited. David's coming back to bless, and she's got this wet blanket of sarcasm. She just tries to chuck on him. How would you feel? David just shrugged it off. He shrugged off this complaint. He says, I'll be, I'm willing to be even more undignified before the Lord or before people because God chose me. God chose me and I'm rejoicing in him. And I wonder, how often does our dignity or sense of propriety hinder us from coming to God and rejoicing in him? We're afraid of what others think. We hold back and I think pride and fear it can restrain us from the mercy of God. But knowing God loves us, Knowing he's chosen us, that gives us great boldness in our faith to cry out to him, to run, to seek him. Continuing in Luke 19, verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. I love this. Out of a crowd of all these people, Jesus comes right to the man in the tree, Zacchaeus, knows his name, so he stops walking, calls out his name, and, and not to chide him for being greedy or because he had a terrible job or had done a terrible job in his job. He says, Zacchaeus, you got to come down because I need to go to your house today. I must stay there. In the previous parable that Jesus told, the Pharisee would not even associate with the tax collector because he was seen as such a sinner. Yet Jesus invited himself into the sinner's house. Zacchaeus did not know Jesus previously. He didn't invite Jesus, but Jesus invited himself in. Now we're taught that's really bad manners to invite yourself over to someone else's house, right? That's really a rude thing to do because it's putting them out. It's not considering them. And we could have ulterior motives. You know, when I went to my friend's house, it's because they had an Xbox or they had a better TV to watch the game or they had cans of soda at their house, which was great. So there was a reason, as well as they were my friend, that I would want to be there rather than my house. Jesus was not selfish. Jesus wasn't greedy when he went to Zacchaeus' house. He's like, I'm inviting myself over to your house. And you know, if you have Jesus in your heart, it's because he invited himself into you. you. You didn't invite him. He loved you first. He said, I'm coming into you. And then we can choose if we're going to be like Zacchaeus, who clambered down from that tree joyfully to receive Jesus. Love the passage in John 1, verse 11. It says, he came to his own. His own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Zacchaeus did more than receive Jesus into his home for a meal. Through faith, he received Jesus into his life. He was born again. In the previous chapter, we see it's easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But here's a very rich man 
who has entered the kingdom of God by grace through faith in Christ. So praise the Lord for his grace that he invites himself over to us. He comes to us. He seeks us out. He calls us by name and says, hey, I, want, I must stay with you today. I mean, there's a sense of urgency there. I must stay with you. Will we receive him? Luke 19, 7. But when they, all, when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to a guest to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything by, from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus is joyful. It seems like that joy was shared by no one else. It says all people complained that Jesus went to be a guest of someone who is a great sinner. Doesn't that show that the grace of God is a foreign concept to our idea of fairness? It seemed unfair that there's this sinner privileged by wealth and position. He should be the one chosen and honored. In their mindset, it's the pious that deserve favor from God. It's the pious one who deserves to be heard from God, by God. But Jesus was glad to go with the sinner because Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. It's the sick who need a doctor. It's the lost who need to be found. When God does something, often his people complain. We see this with the children of Israel, right? God led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. They complained about Moses. They complained about the food. They complained about how, where they were going and how long it was taking. The Jews, they did the same thing in this case. They complained Jesus would eat with a sinner. They viewed it as a blight upon his character when it was exactly the opposite. He changed Zacchaeus's character. Zacchaeus says to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. If I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Suddenly, Zacchaeus, he's a different person. Generosity had replaced greed. He pledged to give half of his goods to the poor. And if, he says, if I've swindled anyone, I'm going to give them back fourfold. And I don't know what's more amazing. The blind man is miraculously able to see, or this greedy tax, chief tax collector who's now freely giving of his things. He's like, half of everything I'm giving away. Jesus had just talked to someone, the rich young ruler, and he said, sell what you have, give to the poor. He was unwilling to do it. Jesus didn't even tell Zacchaeus anything about that. He freely did it because now he had a new spirit within him, not one full of greed and ambition, but one that sought to honor God with what he had. He was prompted by the Holy Spirit and his conscience to set things right. Now notice what Zacchaeus does not do. He didn't quit his job as a chief tax collector, as if the job were the problem. The one who used to extort people, the one who would rob widows, the one who made false accusations, how blessed the people of Jericho would be to have a man of integrity and godliness in that position. Agreed? His oversight of other tax collectors would hold them accountable. This is a great example of how Christians, they can be a witness for God in the jobs he has given them. Zacchaeus didn't need to quit his job 
to serve Jesus as Lord. He could do his, fa- his job faithfully as unto the Lord to bring glory to him. Having received Jesus, now he would be led to walk in righteousness. The good witness of a Christian, a God-fearing tax preparer, police, corporate executive, a banker, a politician, auto mechanic, a tradie, you will have more clout and a wider audience today than in today's society than a pastor. Being a Christian where God has you is so important, and we see that in Zacchaeus, who was going to live his life as unto the Lord. And I don't know what happened to him after this, but when God changes you, how good it is um, to see that it's God's doing that changed him. He went from greedy to generous. He sought to glorify God and just to gain himself. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus was received by Zacchaeus and Jesus brought salvation with him. Matthew Henry, he wrote this, the city was built under a curse, yet Christ honored it with his presence for the gospel takes away the curse. Remember Jericho, when it was destroyed by Joshua and the children of Israel, God caused the walls to fall down. Joshua pronounced a curse over the city. He said, the one who rebuilds Jericho would lay the foundation with its firstborn and build the gates with the life of his younger son. In 1 Kings 16.34, it says this, case, this curse was fulfilled 500 years later, over 500 years. Remember in the days of Elisha, the waters were undrinkable and bitter, and through the power of God, the prophet caused the waters to be healed which is a shadow of that pure living water which would come through the city through faith in Jesus Christ. Zacchaeus, he's a notable sinner. God transformed him. And he was a son of Abraham, not by descent alone, but through faith in God. And Jesus, as the son of David, the son of God, was God, whom he recognized. The Jews that complained about Jesus being the guest of a sinner... They claimed Abraham as their father, but Jesus in another place said, You are of your father the devil, because you're seeking to kill me. You don't do the works of Abraham, because Abraham believed God and followed him. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Is there anyone here today, anyone online, who is lost? We often use the term lost to denote those who have never known Jesus before. Uh, But the scripture does not strictly define this, nor do we in other situations. It's like if you lose something that's yours, it's lost because it was yours. So it's not that it's something that is apart from you. It's something that is yours that you are now reclaiming. And we can use the term lost as sort of a character judgment of someone, whether they're saved or unsaved. But more than a character judgment, lost, it just denotes a current condition. Christians can be lost just like a genuine believer can doubt, or a wise person can make a foolish decision. Is that possible? Yes, it certainly is possible. So someone who has been found, someone who has received Christ, can be lost. You can be at odds about where you should go and what you should do and how you're feeling. Psalm 119, 176, it says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Jesus went to his people the lost sheep of Israel, 
to reveal himself to them, to bring the gospel to them, to seek and to save them. In the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, there was a restoration to the original owner. And the Lord is the one who seeks us to save us when we are lost, when we wander, when we forget. Jesus called and he saved that blind beggar who cried to him. He called to and saved that rich tax collector who shimmied up that tree to catch a glimpse of him. And I wonder, are there, are, is there anyone among us who is seeking God like he is seeking us today? I mean, if we compare ourselves with God, it's like, no, of course I don't measure up. But are we seeking him? Are we seeking him? Are we shouting? Are we climbing a tree? Are we, are we reaching out to him in a way that we can because we desire him? We want to spend time with him. And the, these Zacchaeus just wanted to see him, but how much more did he get? He had Jesus as a guest in his house. He had him as Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. Why don't you turn there and we'll just finish with this passage. Isaiah 55, verse 6. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. May this scripture be fulfilled today as we seek the Lord. When we repent of sin, we choose to follow and rejoice in our Savior. And the only way we can be found is because Jesus has sought us first. Now it's time to seek the Lord, to call on him while he's near. There's no obstacle that needs stand between us and our risen Savior. So throw aside that garment, throw aside that uh, dignity, that pride, which we demand for ourselves, and come to Jesus with the desperation of a blind beggar in chains of sin, like Zacchaeus, because those who do will experience revival in their souls, the opening of blind eyes and freedom from the bonds of sin. This isn't something we need to overthink. It's like, are you lost? Come to Jesus. Cry out to him. He, you will be found. We will find him if we seek him with our whole hearts. So what joy we have in the love of our Savior who seeks, who sees, and saves. And just finish with this. Jesus is inviting himself into your life today. Will you receive him? Let's pray. We are grateful, Father, for your goodness to us, how faithful you are to seek and to save those who are lost. Thank you that you do not uh, redeem us just to pack us away somewhere like a trophy dusty on a shelf, but you, you come to us desiring a relationship with us, and you stand at the door and knock, and you want us to open to you. You want us to rejoice to bring you in, that it wouldn't be an inconvenience for you to spend all day with us because you love us so much and you've done everything for us. Lord, we, we confess that we lose sight of your goodness. We can take for granted the forgiveness and acceptance that you have given for us, and we are like the sheep that wander. Lord, call us by name. 
draw us to your presence, put in us a desire to seek you, and may nothing hold us back from doing all we can to draw near to you, to see your face, to rejoice in your goodness, to experience that fellowship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we love you and we're grateful that you are a Savior. You are our Lord and Deliverer, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.